Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing a new series that we've been in, in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, This is a letter uh, that Paul wrote towards the end of his life, towards a younger pastor, uh, a man named Timothy, Uh, that he had left in a city that was very important to him, the city of Ephesus, where he had planted a church. And he writes to Timothy this letter of advice for what the church is and ought to be, how it ought to be founded, how it ought to be led, what makes for a healthy church, what makes for uh, an unhealthy church. We've called our series The Church's One Foundation, drawing uh, from the lyrics of a great hymn that teaches us that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, right? That the foundation of a church isn't in savvy leadership or great music or great programs, that the foundation of a healthy church is a church founded uh, on Jesus, on on his person and on his work and what he offers to us. And as we head into 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, Paul is right on the verge of going into a whole series of instructions on what, on some practical considerations about what makes for a healthy church, Uh, what different roles within that church are, leadership structures, teaching, things like that. But before he gets into all of that, he starts this section of the letter with the words, first of all, of first importance. This isn't uh, just uh, the first of all as in kind of the first item on a list, right? This is a first of all of saying the, the central and most important thing. Because while there's a lot of things that are to be said about the way that a church governs itself and structures itself and, and works out its mission, that the thing that's of first of all kind of importance is that the church be in continuity with who God is and who he's revealed himself to be in Christ. That the first of all for the church is that it hold an accurate picture of who God is and what he's called us to and what he wants from us. That our life should be uh, together, should be an extenuation of his life in Christ. And so this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. A.W. Tozer was a preacher and writer of the mid-20th century, kind of 40s through 60s. Great uh, Christian teacher, and this is one of uh, the sentences that he wrote that stuck with me and many others. He writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think of in our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It shapes our lives more powerfully and more directly and more profoundly than any other thought, any other identity, any other place that we go to shape our lives. When we say the word God or when we hear the word God, what kind of character do we associate with that God? Who do we imagine him to be? Who do we know him to be? What do we believe that he cares about? What do we believe that he values? What do we believe that he values in the world and in our lives? That's true of our individual lives. What we believe about God will shape the decisions we make, the things that we prioritize, how we approach him, how we worship him. And this is true even if you're not a Christian. Right? Even if you don't go to the scriptures to, to learn who God is and what he's like, the one that you place supreme value on, the things that you place supreme value on in your life will shape the entire direction of your life. Those things that you believe are of utmost importance. The psalmist puts it this way uh, in Psalm 115 and then again in Psalm 135. He's talking about the gods of the nations, the idols that they make. And he says that those who make them and worship them will become like them, right? That the thing that you worship, you ultimately become like, right? If you value money, you'll become somebody whose life is dominated by greed and self, right? That whatever it is that you, you idolize, that you build up, you'll become like. Old Testament scholar uh, Greg Beale summarized the Old Testament teaching on this in this way. He says, you come to resemble what you revere, either to your ruin or to your restoration. We pre preachers, we just can't help ourselves with things that start with the same letter. We just really like that. So he said, whatever you, uh, you resemble what you revere, so you're going to come to, to re resemble the thing of your worship, your object of utmost importance, whether for your ruin, either to your destruction or to your restoration in that image. And so what Paul is getting at here is very much the same for this church, that a church, not just an individual, but a whole church, will come to be shaped by its ideas about God, about who they believe God to be, their worship, their mission, the way they orient their lives to themselves and to their neighbors, will be profoundly shaped by who they know God to be. And in these verses, he's particularly concerned with one element of God's character, one piece that repeats itself several times, you probably noticed in these verses, which is the refrain that God is the one God of all people. You notice that? He said that the church is to be praying for all people because God is the God who desires all people to be saved because Christ is the one mediator who gave his life as a ransom for all people. And so what he's saying is this, is that the church to be the church has to come to recognize that their God is not only their God, 
but is the God of all people. And as they realize that, the church will become truly a church for all people. A church whose posture towards God and towards their neighbors is one that's marked by the belief that whether they acknowledge him or not, that God is the God of all people. And so that's what uh, we are going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what it means that there is one God for all people, as Paul puts it here, that there's one mediator for all people and one church for all people. Look at what Paul says in verses three and four. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is a section, uh, I think I mentioned last week, that some commentators uh, estimate that, that a substantial portion of 1 Timothy, though Paul is the author, that there's a ton of material in 1 Timothy that's Paul drawing on early Christian confessions. We saw that last week when he said, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Right, that Paul's, that he's quoting to them creeds and elements of these early forms of Christian worship. And most commentators believe that that's what's going on here too, that Paul's drawing on an early church Christian confession that there's one God, one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. And he says here that there's one God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's a few important parts of that. First off, it's, it's worth noting that there's one God. Right? Remember, Paul didn't write in a world where everybody believed that there was one God. He wrote into a world of many gods. This Ephesian church lived in a world of many gods. In fact, they lived in the shadow of one of the great temples of their age, the temple uh, to the goddess Artemis or, or Diana. Right? This was a culture of many gods. And yet Paul's writing that, look, there is one God. Right? There is one God. And this is the, the core of Christian teaching in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? That Israel's God was not a tribal God like their neighbors. He wasn't like uh, the gods of the Canaanites, Baal and Asherah and these other gods who were just the God of this region or this tribe or this people. The God of Israel never claimed as, as special as his relationship was with Israel. He never claimed, hey, I'm just Israel's God. I'm your God and they can have their gods. No, he was the God, the creator, the maker of all things in heaven and on earth, the maker of every man, woman, and child on earth, the maker not only of Israel, but of their neighbors. So one God, neither the regional deities of Israel's neighbors or the many gods of the Greek and Roman world, that there was one God for all people. And this, this one God desires that all people should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, there's a couple of things, actually, there's a lot wrapped up in that little sentence, right? First, there's the desire that all people would be saved, which indicates that all people are in a dilemma, right? That all people have a problem that's in need of salvation, right? That all people, 
regardless of your tribe, regardless of your creed, regardless of your language, your ethnicity, or your culture, that all humanity has the same biggest problem, that we're all in need of the same salvation. And Paul says that this one God desires that all people would be saved and that all people would come to a true knowledge of the true God, that they would come to know the truth. This means that you have literally never met a person in your life that is not the object of God's desire, right? You've never met a person, whether they're your friend or your enemy, whether they're like you or unlike you, that isn't the object of divine desire, made in his image, made to know him, made in love and desired by God that they would come to know him. Now, this does bring us up against a theological tension that's been in existence in the Christian church for a very, very long time, almost as long as Paul's been doing his writing. And the tension is this. Okay, so if God desires, as Paul says here, that all people would be saved, and it doesn't look like all people are currently trusting and believing in Christ, how do we square those two things? Right? How do we square the idea that an almighty, all-powerful, saving God has what we're told here is a desire that all people be saved, and the reality that at any given time in human history, it looks like somewhere between a small and medium-sized group of people actually are trusting him and following him and worshiping him. They're believing him in a way that uh, the scriptures would point to as saving faith. And if uh, we're unwilling to go, which I think we should be, as far as universalism, right? Universalism being that belief that eventually all people will be saved, which I think biblically is, doesn't square with what the scriptures teach about unbelief and the justice of God and the reality of that justice. That leaves us with an issue, right? Of how can a God who desires the salvation of all only actually seem to be saving a few, right? How do we square those two things up with each other? We as uh, participants in the Reformed tradition have tended to place an emphasis on the reality, the biblical reality, that God can do what God sets out to do, right? That God is the sovereign king of all things and over the whole universe, orders the entire world according to his will, right? That all things happen under the kingly oversight of God, including but not limited to who comes to saving faith and who doesn't, that that's all in God's hands, And yet, we have to take seriously these passages in the scriptures that say what they say, that God desires all people to be saved, right? That we shouldn't allow ourselves to have a narrow view of God's saving intent, but to really and truly believe these passages of scripture that talk about the breadth of God's mercy, the breadth of God's desire that all people would be freely offered the gospel and would come to real faith. I remember uh, after being ordained as a Presbyterian pastor for not all that long, uh, preaching a sermon in a church where I said that God loves all people, that God is a God of love. And I remember somebody pulled me aside after the sermon and said, now listen here, young preacher. 
Can we really, as Reformed Christians, say that God loves everybody when we know that God loves the elect? He loves his church. He he had this kind of narrow view of who we could say God loves. And as a young pastor, I was kind of chastened by it and flustered by it. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yes, sir, you've got a point, you know. Um, you ever, I, I oftentimes find myself uh, in this place of thinking what I wish I had said. You ever, you ever have those what I wish I had said moments? Um, you can't think of it in the moment, uh, but there's all this stuff that after the fact you wish you had said, right? And you want to call them back or write an email or whatever. That's right. And what I wish I had remembered to quote to this well-meaning person was, well, to start with, 1 Timothy 2. God desires all people to be saved. And the multitude of other biblical verses that basically say this same point. I could have taken him to Genesis chapter 6, where after uh, the flood, or actually before the flood, seeing the sin of the, the world in Noah's day, we learn this of God, that it grieved him to his heart, that God was grieved by the sin of the world that day. Did God know about the sin? Did he, was he aware of it? Did it happen under his sovereign kingship? Yes, but it still broke his heart. Or you could go to, to the words of Isaiah, when he sent Isaiah the prophet with these words, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. And remember, these are, this is Israel at, at some points where God says is basically a lost cause at this point. He sends Isaiah knowing that these people are going to hear and not believe. And yet he sends him out of this motive of compassion and desire to gather them back to himself. Or we can think about Jesus' words as he headed into Jerusalem, where he would ultimately face his crucifixion. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you would not. Was Jesus powerless to change their hearts and to gather them? No, he had spent three years changing hearts every single place that he went. And yet he still had this heartbreaking longing to gather all hearts to himself. Ezekiel 18 and 33, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Or Paul's fellow uh, apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if we look at the, old, the, the, the biblical writers from the Old Testament through the New Testament, They are comfortable talking about both of these things at once. God's activity in salvation, his grace in salvation, his pursuit, his kingship over it, and the breadth and universal scope of God's love and desire for everyone, no matter their background, no matter their sin, no matter their unbelief. Paul's emphasis here is on the breadth of God's love and the breadth of the gospel. It was important for Timothy to know this and to shape the church along these lines because there's hardly a more important question for the life of the church than this. What is God's posture towards my neighbors? Right? I mean, think about all that a church does, all of a church's operations, everything that a, every ministry that a church goes about. 
There's hardly a more important question than what does God think about the people that I drove past on my way here this morning? What does God think about the people that I live with, the people that I work with, the people that I share life with alongside of me? The people that agree with me and the people that disagree with me, the people who believe as I do and the people who believe differently than I do. What should my posture and what should our posture be towards those people? And Paul is saying, look, your orientation towards all people, we're going to see uh, towards the end, should be one of prayer and love and service because that's God's posture towards all people, because that's God's heart towards all people. It's rooted in the inherent worth of every individual in God's unrelenting love and desire that shapes our posture towards them. And so he goes on to say, there's one God who desires uh, that all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul says, look, God's desire is for all people to be saved. And he's made a provision of a way for all people to be saved through the one man, the mediator, Jesus Christ. The mediator is the one who comes between two estranged parties. And this is uh, the testimony of of the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation is that the, the fall, sin, so fractured the relationship between God and humanity that there's a necessary need for a mediation, for someone to bring the two halves back together again, for someone to join heaven and earth, God and humanity again, the mediator, Jesus Christ. I love the way that Paul does this. He he talks about, he uses this language about the stunning breadth of God's love that all people would come to know him through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, right? That the gospel has this broad and narrow element to it, right? That it is both this broadly expansive love, God's plan to reconcile all things in his son, and this narrowing, what Jesus will call uh, the narrow way of the call to salvation, right? That there's this broad call, but there is only one way, Through the man, Jesus Christ, the one who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. The one who comes saying, not just that he came to show us the way, but that he actually in himself is the way. That he's the one who joins God and man together again. There's this broad scope of God's heart that leads and calls through the one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ. And Paul references in these few short words uh, three of the most important elements of Christ's life on earth, his incarnation, his death, and then his resurrection and ascension. He references his incarnation when he calls him the man, Christ Jesus. Earlier, he's already talked about the divinity of, of, of Christ. When he calls him the man, Jesus Christ, he's not saying he's a man and not a God or not God. But he is emphasizing his humanity, right? That the way to God the Father is through the man, Christ Jesus, the God who became man, who became like us, who became one of us, who became uh, flesh and blood partaker in humanity with all of its ups and downs and frailty, 
that he became the man, Christ Jesus. That in Jesus, God and man were joined together in one person, one body, bridging this unbridgeable gap between heaven and earth. A gap that you and me and every human being has been powerless to bridge on our own. God took the initiative by becoming the God and man, one person, Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross as a ransom for all people. The language of ransom is the language of a debt paid for salvation, right? It comes from the language of paying the debt for someone to come out of prison or out of slavery. To pay someone's ransom was to buy their freedom. We still keep this language of ransom in English. We'll talk about kidnappers, right? Asking for a ransom to let go their prisoner. And so uh, here, Paul's saying, Jesus gave his life as a ransom to pay the debt of slavery to sin and death so that we could know freedom. This is Paul drawing on the language of Isaiah who first brought in this language of the servant of God as his ransom. It's actually almost word for word uh, the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 10 when he says the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then his resurrection and ascension, he goes to the right hand of the Father where he serves as the mediator between God and man that we have one before the throne of God who serves as our great high priest, our mediator, who brings our needs, the needs of humanity and his people before a God who loves us. And so the church, Paul wants Timothy to know, stands in this tension between a God or in the midst of a tension of a God who desires the salvation of all, whose heart is for all of our neighbors, who's for all people, and with the message of the mediator that says, and this is the way. This is the way that you can come to know the true God. There aren't other ways. This is, Paul says, the, the way to come to know the truth. But it's an offer, a broad offer to come to the narrow way of Jesus Christ, the one who's made a way for the church to come and people to come to know God our Savior. And then he marks us out to be the church for all people. The church for all people. Look where he starts. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I looked at this uh, as I was prepping this message. I looked to see, okay, what's, what's Paul doing here? What's the difference between supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings? And uh, you know what uh, all of my research found? Nobody really knows. Uh, even John Calvin, who wrote uh, more commentaries probably per page than any other, any other person in church history, when he got to this verse, he says, uh, actually, nobody really knows the difference, right? We know what thanksgiving is. We know that's gratitude, right? But as to the difference between supplications, prayers, and intercessions, even Calvin goes, eh, pray. <laughs> He's talking about prayer. It's talking about lifting up all people before God. Interceding for them is what Peter called a kingdom of priests, right? Bringing the needs of the whole world, not just our own needs, to God our Father. And then he says, for kings and all who are in high positions, 
This is why on a typical, we had a lot of prayers uh, otherwise this morning, but typical, on a typical Sunday, we pray on a rotating basis, right? You, you've probably noticed for uh, the president the, in, in national government, then the governor and state government, then the mayor and local government, right? And we do that regardless of who's in power or who won what election or whatever, because God commands us to, to pray for those who are in authority over us. And then I love this prayer that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. My goodness, after the past couple of years that we've lived through, when you think about government and all that stuff, doesn't a quiet and peaceful life sound really, really nice? (laughs) Doesn't, Doesn't a prayer for our government, a prayer for the nation, a prayer for whatever nation God has happened to place you in, that you would be able to live a quiet, and peaceful, and dignified, and godly life, not consumed by what's going on up above you, aware but not consumed by it, to live a meaningful, and purposeful, and rich, and peaceful life in our towns, in our cities, in our families, in our churches. I love this prayer. And it's worth noting, when Paul urged Timothy to pray for this, the king in their life was Nero, the emperor of Rome, who was maybe the most anti-Christian emperor uh, that Rome ever had. He uh, basically lost his mind at one point, probably burned down Rome, uh, and then launched the widest persecution of the Christian church that, that history had seen. When Paul told Timothy in the church at Ephesus to pray for kings and leaders, there was not yet a single Christian ruler in the entire world. So when he's saying pray for kings, he's praying wherever you are and who's ever over you, you pray for that pagan king. You pray for him whether you like him or not, whether he likes you or not, whether he means you're good or means you're ill. You're to pray for those who are in authority over you because they've been given a great stewardship, right? They have more authority, right? We all have a certain amount of authority in our lives, but they have more say in how it goes for more people than anyone else you know, anyone else in your community. And because they have this powerful ability to shape the lives of those under them, you ought to pray for them. You ought to pray for them whether they call on the same God as you do or not, that they would have wisdom, that they would pursue righteousness, that they would be humble, right? That you should pray for those over you so that you can live a quiet and peaceful life, a life that Paul describes as a life of prayer and discipleship and worship and mission, a life of living our lives at peace with all people. You know, the most quoted biblical reference uh, in all of George Washington's writings and speeches, he loved to quote the Bible. And one of his favorite, the, the, the Bible verse that he quotes more often than any other, uh, that thanks to Hamilton, we can all sing now, is Micah 4.4, that every man shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make him feel afraid. Right? The, The ideal was that each person would be able to live their life at peace, without fear, and able to pursue their life, pursue their ends, um, without being bothered. And so the church is to pray for the for all people. For the state, the church is to be praying for peace peace to carry out its mission and to live its life. 
We are to be praying for all people, right? So our desire isn't just that we should be able to live a peaceful and quiet life, but that all people should be able to live a peaceful and quiet life, that all people should know security and should know basic uh, freedom, that all people should be taken care of, and that we would be able to live a life of peaceful worship and mission and love. So he says that the church is to be a church of prayer for all people, and then that the church should adopt God's mission towards all people. Notice the way Paul ends. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So Paul's saying, look, this God who loves all people, the God who calls us to pray for all people and to love all people, has sent me as an apostle to all people. He sent me not to my countrymen. He sent me not to Israel, but he sent me to the Gentiles. He sent me around the known world carrying this message of the God who desires to gather people to himself a God who desires to make his way known, a God who desires uh, to proclaim the cross, the mediator, to all people. And so, as we come to recognize that we have a God who loves and cares and desires all people, and a Christ who gave himself as a ransom sufficient for all people, we're called to be a church for all people. Right? The church is called to be a church that's concerned not just with the people who are in the walls, not just with the people who gather, but we're called to be a church that's mindful of all people, that seeks out all people, that seeks to gather and welcome all people, that seeks to love and serve all people out of the conviction that God loves all people, that God opposes everything that degrades them, that God opposes uh, the sin that warps us, that he opposes the oppression that crushes us, that he opposes everything that violates and opposes his image bearers. And we as the church are called to be a church for the world because we have a God who's for the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that it is your desire to gather all of your children to yourself. Lord, we know, uh, we live in a world where we know and love people who believe differently than we do. We have members of our family and neighbors and friends and people that we love very, very dearly um, who we desire to see come uh, to know you who, who don't yet. And so, Lord, we lift them up to you. Lord, we give you thanks uh, that you are not a narrow God, that you are not a God who came only for a few, You're not a God who came only for these kind of people or those kind of people. You certainly didn't come for the good and the righteous and the proud. But Lord, that you came for all people. Lord Jesus, help us uh, to adopt your posture towards our world. To seek to love and to pray and to seek all in our world. Lord, you came after us not because we were good, In fact, Lord, you tell us that you uh, came and you uh, died for us while we were still your enemies. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to lay down our lives in your love for your world that you've made. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website 
ChristChurchInTown.org.